Today's Friday Pouring Rain edition of the BS Podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek. That's been our presenting sponsor since 1979. The NBA and NHL seasons are in full swing. SeatGeek, the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to your favorite team's games. Buy and sell tickets in just two taps on your phone. You don't have to worry about it. You just, people just give you tickets, Michael. I never get tickets. The I'm general on no, public has to buy them. I'm on, you just I'm, go with rich I'm people. I'm on no freebie list. Okay. I'm on no freebie list. Right. Never. I have SeatGeek help you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. And if you're looking for concert tickets, even better. I've had SeatGeek on my phone for two years. It's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. Thanks to their revolutionary grading system. Try it out. Download the free SeatGeek app today or go right to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by Simply Safe. As important as home security is, it can't come at the expense of signing your life away via a confusing long-term contract. Simply Safe is wireless and portable. It has a cellular connection built in. There are no lines that can be cut by potential intruders. Download the Simply Safe app free on your iPhone or Android smartphone. Take control of your security remotely. Unbeatable protection, great value, no contracts. Protect your home the smart way. Visit simplysafe.com/ringer to get 10% off your system today. Simply Safe with two eyes. SimplySafe.com slash ringer. Speaking of the ringer, we're brought to you by the ringer.com and the ringer podcast. I have a Friday column up on the ringer, an NBA trade deadline mailbag. Nice. That back, includes, though. I tried to answer, somebody asked to come up with a trade for every team. Oh. I spent so much time on this. I <laughs> This was like from 6.30 in the morning to like 11.30. I spent five hours trying to come up with trades, trying to, and I know I didn't do the best job. I probably went like 20 for 27. What was your favorite of the list? I haven't read the column yet. My favorite was the most simple one. It was uh, Jimmy Butler for Damian Lillard. I like those just big ass one for one. Very old school. This is, but this you're I feel you're famous for the five team, the the multi team, the multi team. I have one, one of those that's... too. We can talk about that. But uh, that's Malcolm Gladwell. He's coming up right now. But first, Eddie Vedder, let's roll. Malcolm Gladwell is here, uh, BS Report slash BS Podcast Hall of Famer. Nope. It's been a while. Couldn't be happier. So many things to talk about. Yeah, I was making up fake trades for this column, and you know, you know it's funny? Because I do it with my players, too. Fans overrate their own players, and when you put them in trades, they lose their mind. It's like, it's like, when you, it's like if somebody tried to put my kids in a trade. You anticipating a lot of blowback from the column? Yeah, but it'll be fun. I love it. Yeah, I had some good ones, had some decent ones, had some better ones. Yeah, trade deadline is Thursday. The NBA is making more money than ever. Did you see the Forbes thing about Wait, how much I've, money? I've pointed, I have a, a question about that. Yeah, you know, in um, in Michael Lewis's book, uh, the Undoing Project, his latest book. Yeah, the whole your preface, friend of me, Michael Lewis. My, he's my friend. His, the whole preface is all about your boy at. At Houston. Daryl Morey, chapter Darryl one. And about all the steps that Daryl Morey makes to improve his judgment as yeah. a general manager. And it makes me think, when you were saying that we always overrate our own players, why wouldn't a team have a general manager at arm's length? In other words, imagine if you had a complete outsider be your GM for that exact reason. So you don't want, him, you don't want a GM who's fallen in love with any of your players, who's completely... I mean, Belichick is someone who is 
who's he's he's a very rare figure in that he seems to be able to have emotional distance from his players. Jamie Collins, one day he's the most talented player on the team. The next he, next day he's gone to the Browns, right? Yeah. So he, he but I don't think most most of us can do that. But I'm wondering, would, why wouldn't you have like a general manager on another coast, like who's who never sees the players, isn't who has the ability to be completely objective about things like trades? I think the smarter NBA teams right now rely on a bunch of different people. And like the Warriors, for example, I think Jerry West is a version of that guy. Yeah. He's detached. They just ask him advice and he just says stuff like, you can't trade Clay Thompson. That that guy's great. Or you should absolutely trade Clay Thompson. He's overrated. He's not in the mix. And that, that was what that chapter... I really like that chapter. And one of the things that was in there was that concept of falling in love with your players. And mm-hmm. when they were making a Kyle Lowry trade and somebody in the room had the suggestion, we'll flip it around. What if we weren't involved with that trade? Would we want to get that pick for And then it was kind of, they all realized, oh yeah, we should do this. But yeah, I think you get attached to people. Like I wrote in the thing I did today about Marcus Smart. I love Marcus Smart. I know I'm irrational about it. There's no trade... The value that the Celtics fans and the organization has put on Marcus Smart can never be matched in a trade. Yeah. Because they, they have him as like an A plus and he's, you know, a B or a B plus, but it doesn't matter. And I think that happens a lot. I think that's why teams are so afraid to trade. Have you have you ever done a, um, a post-mortem on your trade columns? So you have, over the years, have done how many trade columns? It's not just the trades. It's also like all the draft diaries. Draft diaries. But it'd be really fun to go back and just see. I would love to know, for example, I would love to know whether, in retrospect, the trades you propose for your teams, Boston teams, are oh, they better have to be or terrible. worse. Yeah, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure they're totally skewed. I've had, I've had wild swings with, uh, with drafts. I've had some like great ones. Like I, w- I was going crazy the year Curry kept falling. And, uh, oh, that was... You're that on top 2009 of that. was probably my best one in terms of who I... From 2007, 2008, 2009, like I had Duran over Odin, and then I had some terrible ones. What were some of your? I can't remember what your. I, I really thought Derek Williams should have gone ahead of Kyrie Irving. Ooh. Yeah, I wasn't sold on Kyrie Irving. He only played ten games in college. Yeah. It's the guys that always gave me the most trouble were the guys with no sample size, like high school guys, Europeans, college guys who'd only played a few games. But those, those are the ones that screwed in, me up. In, in fairness to yourself, those are the guys that give all of us trouble. I mean, that is the, those are high variance picks. You, Yeah. Dwight you, Howard. I remember Dwight Howard versus Emeka Okafor was an argument because we'd watched Emeka Okafor for three years. Dwight Howard was some dude in high school. I Well, I have strong feelings about Dwight Howard that aren't positive, but... <laughs> that uh, aren't positive? <laughs> <laughs> He's one of those guys, I, well, actually it's not really, Dwight Howard, I, when I read your analysis of basketball players from time to time i take issue with your and i feel like over the years you've been too positive about dwight howard because you not anymore not anymore but the other guy the other guy who and you're not alone hardcore basketball people the affection they have for mellow and have had historically for mellow i'm turning on that too just just i you had in your basketball book you had mellow so high i remember reading that it's like am i right you had mellow in no i had dwight i had Iverson was the one I had too high. Mello, I've written since the basketball book, glowing stuff about how he could be the best guy in a title team. I I don't think that was wrong. Really, I just think he never found the right situation. But he's he could have been the go-to guy in the best team. But those two guys are similar in that 
You can say they never found the right situation, but you can also say that they're not people uh, cre- uh, capable of creating the right situation either. They're not making people around they're them their better. Own, and they're their own worst enemy. Yeah. Like Carmelis had multiple situations where he could have actually had a great situation, but he chose money each time. Yeah. And he chose guaranteed long-term dollars over being in the best situation. And the thinking is, well... Maybe I'll get the best situation anyway, which isn't the way to go. But what's happening with basketball in the last three years has basically blown up my book. Like if if I did the book again, but your I publisher even... is your publisher is like screaming, "No, no, don't say that!" <laughs> no, it's like I don't even know how you can compare the basketball we're watching now to the basketball from thirty years ago. You know, it, it's the guy like the fact that Russell Westbrook is averaging a triple double which seems amazing on paper. And it, and it is, parts of it are amazing because of how hard he plays all the time and just the amount of energy he has to expend to do that. But it's also way easier for a guard to get 10 rebounds in 2017 than it was 20 years ago because there's less big guys out there. Everyone's shooting more threes. Threes tend to bounce longer. Like there's ways to bump it up. And I don't really know how to compare the eras anymore. Like Larry Bird in 86, he led the league with 82 three-pointers total yeah made 82 three-pointers it's like curry could do that potentially in a month yeah yeah you know yeah so i don't how do you compare it how do you compare when the styles are totally different when fast breaks the guys are going out to the three-point line and they're trying to get layups so it's almost like it's almost like what happened to baseball, where baseball had these different eras, and there were some where pitchers were great, there was some where there was more homers, and I think that's going to have to be the way we start thinking about it. But isn't this when I, th- I think another way of saying of looking at the contemporary basketball uh, situation is, it reminds me of the eighties. It's it's very sharply different from the nineties and the early aughts, but you know, remember those uh, crazy high scoring Denver teams of yeah, the late eighties. Yeah. That strikes me as a team that if you if you took that Denver team and stuck them in 2017 and just had them move back three feet on behind the three-point line right. on most of their shots, they they work, right? You know that So they they'd have to relearn how to play though. Cuz the early 90s had some scoring binge stuff too. The difference is like so I had this question in my mailbag that I ended up taking out for space, but it was about Antoine Walker, how Antoine Walker was it, the Nash's sons always get credited for being the team that brought back the three ball. But there was an Antoine Walker, Paul Pierce, two year run on the Celtics where basically all they did was shoot threes. Cause that was the only way they had a chance to compete at a high level. So they shot, there's like three years in a row. The Celtics led the league in three pointers, but in the Oh three season, they averaged over 26 a game, which is a ton. It was way more than anyone else. And Antoine shooting eight a game and Pierce is shooting seven a game. But they weren't going in. Pierce was like a 30% three-point shooter. Yeah. So people were thinking this way, but they weren't good enough yet. And I think what they weren't good enough at shooting them yet. And I think the difference now is people are just better at shooting them. And I don't know. that That's the story I haven't read yet. Why are people better at shooting threes now? Yeah. What is it? Is it spacing? Is it just practice? Is it they grew up? during an era where they they were all taught to shoot the same way and release the same way and that's helped is it 20 years of just repetition that's the part i don't know it would be really i mean it would be really interesting to have to get a completely accurate practice diary of steph curry and compare it to 
I mean, what was 20 years ago and the equivalent score doing? And I'm sure maybe it's just that Steph Curry is taking 80% of his practice shots from outside the arc. Well, one of your obsessions was the underhand free throw. Yes. And I, I would say the three-pointer is a cousin of this where all of a sudden there was a three-point line, right? The 79-80 season, it just comes in. It's this long line. And I remember going to those games the first year because I, I was living in Boston with my dad. It was Larry Bird's first season. We went to a ton of those games. And the three-point line was like an oddity. It would be the equivalent of like if they had a four-point line now at midcourt. You just stare at it. And when somebody shot it, it was like, whoa, he's shooting from there. Yeah. And it just didn't seem conceivable that this would be the thing that completely changed the league. Well, this, you know, the, three, the history of the three-point line is completely consistent with the history of of all major innovations. So there's a kind of, there's a, a literature on um, time lag and innovations. So you introduce an idea and how long before it's, it's a kind of clearly disruptive revolutionary idea, how long does it take to be adopted wide, in a widespread way? So you can look at the ATM. <clears throat> the ATM, the first ATM, I might be getting this wrong, I feel like is in the early 80s, late 70s. Okay. People don't start, the ATM doesn't kind of reach maturity until the, you know, 20, 20 years later or so. Same thing with the telephone, same thing with the fax machine, same thing with, you, same thing with the smartphone. You go down the list, it always takes essentially a generation. For you people, think a generation? Yeah, for people to adopt. Um, I mean, there's a, like I said, this is a massive... Um, literature on this in in economics about about how it takes a generation for even the most sort of obviously good ideas to get widespread acceptance and the three-point shot is a perfect example of that i mean what seems like a no-brainer to us now move back two feet and all of a sudden the it's worth an extra point yes the math point that it you know it's like and same thing no-brainer get your cash from a machine don't go to the bank during bank hours and line and line up in a long line and spend spend 20 minutes getting 40 your 40 dollars for the weekend that seems really obvious just now it was not obvious right in 1989 right it's like it was a weird idea do i trust the machine and the banks were like, I don't know how many machines we should put out there. Like, it's the same thing. It's this weird. The I learning think Isaiah curve is Thomas, always. Like, I did something about this movie. Isaiah Thomas led the league in three point shooting with like twenty eight percent the second or third year. Literally twenty eight percent was he was the highest one. I remember things started to shift. First, it was when you're down three with ten seconds left. Oh, we'll shoot a three. We could tie it, and everybody's just taking terrible threes. So that started it. But Bird was the first guy that I remember who kind of understood what the psychological impact was it of it was he would take them in big moments as kind of like the dagger the first one the biggest one he made his second season was the one that clinched the game six in houston to win the nba finals they swung it around to him makes this three in the corner clinches the game runs down with his fist it was like oh the three it's kind yeah. of like it could be like a closer but it wasn't until the mid 80s when people started seeing it that way and then all of a sudden in the late 80s that's when like the Dale Ellis type started coming in. Yeah. These guys that like they were spending. And then Reggie Miller comes anyway, in. How, and, in retrospect, how good of a three shooter was Dale Ellis? I mean, pretty good. Like you know, in the in that like high thirties to low forties percent. Was Del Curry? Del Curry was like, yeah, he was up there. I think He's not. Uh, he wasn't anywhere. How close was he to his son? If you compared him like against everybody else in his era versus Steph, it's probably similar. They screwed things up though. There was like a two-year stretch 
Would they move it in? In the right? mid-90s, they moved it in. So everybody's numbers are way off. Yeah. But then when they moved it back, the numbers started coming around. But, I mean, when the Celtics were shooting all those threes, like, they made the 2002 Eastern Finals, and they're just gunning threes. Like, I think Antoine took eight a game in the playoffs. By the way, is that Patino era It was Celtics? right after. It was right He after. got fired. The new guy came in. They just had two good players. He's just like, just fire threes. And, so, and he had actually... I guess done the math. And it's like, even if we make one out of every three, it's better than any other option we have. And they almost made the finals. Like they really could have. And then it wasn't until about the mid 2000s, I think, that really the math and people like Daryl started coming in. The, the interesting sort of physics problem is uh, if you add two or three feet to a mid range jumper, what is the, what is your, your, all things being equal, how much harder is the shot? Right, so you're going to get an extra point, but you're also obviously attempting a more difficult shot. And what I would love to know is how much. I mean, someone surely has 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 quantified exactly what is the cost of moving back a couple feet. We know know the benefit. We don't know the cost. But you know what I found just when I made my comeback when I was playing pickup hoops for a few years, and I had a 20 foot shot, right, which is about three three feet in from the three point line. But most of the time when you play pickup, everything counts one point. Like if you're doing it correctly, it's a game to 11, everything's one point. What was interesting was people would shoot threes anyway. And I, and Jacoby and I, the guy I always played with, we would always talk about it, like what would make these people shoot threes? And it was because they had practiced so many threes and the line, it, it made them know where they were on the basketball court. Oh, so you yeah. can make a case. People are more comfortable shooting a three than one that's three, four feet in. Because you don't have the, you don't have your bearings the same way. If you're behind the three pointer, you're like, I know if when I'm here, this is what I have to do, and I think that's one of the reasons the three point shot has taken off like it has. Yeah, it's like you know, you get your four spots. I went to when we went to do the Steve Kerr podcast last week. We went to the Warriors shoot around. Javale McGee was making threes. The rebounding Tate was there. The rebounding throwing it back. Three, three, three. This guy is like a dunker. Really? Like, he's, <laughs> no idea he could shoot threes. And yeah. he's probably yeah. made eight out of ten. Yeah. You know? So I, I think, who knows? Who knows where this is going? Well, this is the... the Would you move it back or no? No. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, although what I'm interested in is there'll come a point where everyone plays Houston ball, just basically. By the way, did you see there was a clip online on YouTube of a high school team that really does just do layups and threes there's no in in between game right and i there's like five minute video of them and it is it no longer resembles basketball i mean it it, it, i'm not sure i love it i'm not i yeah i don't know i had mixed things it was really kind of cool to see it was the coach basically said you cannot shoot anything that's not a three or a layup right and so you see the players they sort of move into the paint and they're, they kind of do u turn They do these kind of U-turns once they see that there's nothing available. Like, I've, and does that, there's like, it's almost like there's a big kind of, you know, uh, there's a huge gray zone yeah. inside the three-point line and they just don't go near it. I mean, it's just, you've never, like there's some, it's some kind of hybrid basketball you've not seen before. The most interesting idea I've heard for tempering this a little bit would be to change the arc so that, it goes out before the corner. We basically eliminate the corner three. Oh, okay. Because yeah. you could argue the corner three is where a lot of the damage is because you can put the guy in the corner. He just stands there. He doesn't do anything. He spreads the floor for everybody else. And it's worth three points every time the defense screws up and he's able to take a shot. 
And if you're trying to establish a better inside out flow, that's what you'd have to eliminate. The counter would be everybody likes basketball watching it more now. Yeah. You I don't know, get, people I don't like know why, threes. Why are we defending are you, the basketball of the 90s? And that was really, really difficult to watch basketball. It was like that. The, the Riley the Pistons, era was pretty rough. The Pistons were like, that's, that's like, God, I don't want to go back to that. It's a good segue to Charles Oakley. Oh, Oak. Yes, yes. This I, I got to say, I usually have a handle on sports stories and how they're going to mushroom. This one was like the biggest story of the season. I, I did not see this one coming. <laughs> well, it's New York. And okay. two, it's uh, the, we know there's, a, it's Dolan. Dolan. And anytime you can get some opportunity to gang up on Dolan in New York, there's like lots of, of uh, but like, it's sort of, the, the thing that got me about that story is a bunch of things. One is, so you watch the tape, Dolan's getting, or uh, Oakley's getting into it with what looks like one or more people. Just, but it's like, there's, you know. Well, which tape did you see? Because there was a second angle that started 20 seconds earlier than that tape. Oh, I didn't see the second angle. Where he gets knocked down by one of those guys. And that's why he was so angry. Oakley gets knocked down? Oakley gets knocked down. The guy, he's trying to reach his thing and somebody, and he ends up falling over. Oh. And he got up. And then the tape that everybody saw was like started 10 Pushing. seconds after that. And that's well, why he was mad. Well, so, but here's my, my problem. So they drag him out, physically drag him out of the right. arena. And then they file charges against him. Now, to me, this is where the story becomes kind of preposterous and bigger than basketball. This, in a nutshell, is everything that's gone wrong with, <laughs> with the criminal justice system in America. Give me a break. There's a shoving match at a basketball game. Yep. They drag the guy out and then the cops file charges. What is the conversation that takes place when they have Oakley out outside? It should just be go home or I'm sorry, you know, yeah. Oak not today. There's the subway. But instead, they're bringing in the cops and cops with a straight face are are filing charges against a man because of a shoving match? Like this is like this is a, this absurd elevation of all physical contact into the criminal arena right it's just but that's the whole the point the reason this story takes off is because at every level it's about overreaction overreaction of the police overreaction of dolan who then hangs oakley out to dry with this statement where he claims with no evidence that oakley's got a drinking problem right or a drug problem like how does he get away how did how does he get away with that that seemed like that was uh he could have been sued for that if Oakley wanted, if he he's basically should. he's basically <clears throat> saying he thought the guy might have a drinking problem, yeah. but had no evidence whatsoever. No evidence whatsoever. I am quite certain that Silver was on the phone to him fifteen minutes after that statement came out. How he could how he could issue that statement without running it? Are there no are there no adults in the Knicks front office who would say to him, "You can't say that about a Knicks legend." Uh, by the way, you can't say that about a human being, right? What do you think? Dolan has to gain at this point from owning the Knicks. I was really thinking about that the other day. I was going to write something in the mailbag about it, and I just couldn't come up with a good angle because my guess is he's just so stubborn. He's He just goes home at night, and he's like, someday I'll show them. Yeah. They're going to see. Well, They'll see someday. <laughs> and And I think that's just, I think he's just wired that way. Whereas most people would look at this and go, Wow, everyone hates me. Yeah. I, I've owned this team for 17 years. The fans hate me. Nobody thinks I'm good at this. Um, every time I go to the arena, I'm afraid somebody's going to yell at me or make fun of me. And 
My team's worth probably $4 billion if I want to include all the assets and sell it. Maybe I should just get rid of this just thing. Just walk away. Just walk well, he, away. Maybe it's time. He, he reminds, I mean, I, not to inject politics into this, but you know who he reminds me of. Uh, and why do, I, why do I say he reminds me of this other unnamed person? Because they're both examples of this kind of under-theorized pathology, which is they're the rich kid's son. The rich kid's son has got a problem, which is he spends his entire life trying to kind of outgrow his father's shadow. And he knows he's insecure because he knows that everyone looks at him and said, you didn't do it yourself. You got daddy's cash. Right. Right. So you have in both these cases, one on Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street, one on 7th Avenue and 34th Street. You have these these um, these privileged, spoiled kids trying to figure out what their adult role is, right, in their father's world. And none of them handle it well. This has been a subject I've been obsessed with as a sports fan over the years, the legacy kid owner. Yeah, it's the... The the kid who owns a team because his dad gave it to him. And it's gone right in certain cases. When did it go right? I'm trying to think. Well, like, for example, Whit Grosbeck, the Celtics owner, his dad is this legend. You know, and became very successful. And Wick went to all the right schools and followed him and has become a very good owner. I think that's a good example of a legacy kid type situation going right. Most of the time it goes terribly. And most of the time you end up with Jimmy Buss and James Dolan and all these people. And, you know, it's almost like watching the, uh, the Grammys montage, the death montage. And they show Frank Sinatra Jr., and you think like Frank Sinatra Jr. is on this montage because he sang because he was later Frank Sinatra Sr. It had no nothing to do with whether he had a good voice or not. Yeah. And that's what basically what's happened with a lot of these owners. You know, it's funny. I was once so, so obsessed with this rich rich people's children's thing. I'm that, still obsessed. That, can we still be obsessed yes, with we can it? Still. Okay. I went and I there's a family called the Guns. Uh Papa Gund was uh, made an extraordinary fortune in banking in the sort of 40s and 50s in Cleveland. Yeah. And he had four children, and one of his kids bought the Cle- had owned the Cleveland Cavaliers at one point. Do you remember this? Back in the 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gordon yeah. Gunn. Gordon Gunn. Yeah. So there's four guns, and each one of the guns turned out amazing. So there's a, there's a daughter gun who uh, at one point I think was chairman of MoMA. There was a son who is a... Uh, history teacher at a high school in a private high school in uh, New York, and then Gordon uh, is someone who has uh, done really, really, really. I mean, there are good philanthropists and lousy ones. He's like an exceptional one, and has done all kinds of interesting things in his life, including own the Cavaliers. So I was like so fascinated by the fact that here's a family where their dad was like mega rich. I mean, not right, like serious, serious. Probably one of the top five richest Americans at one point in his life. So I went and I, how many, I can't remember how many of the children I interviewed, but I was just curious, how did you guys turn out? How did you guys turn out okay when everyone else in your position, you know, has all of these perilous? And one of the things, it was, it became clear when they talked about their father, how much effort their father put into making sure that his kids did not bear the ill effects of his wealth. Like it was a serious, propaganda, I've forgotten his name clearly took this really seriously. They lived in a normal house in a Cleveland suburb. They didn't even know one of the guns, I forgot which one, told me that 
He didn't even find out that his father was wealthy until he was in college, and some guy in college said, well, blah, 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 you know that because your dad's the third richest American. He was like, what? <laughs> he didn't know. No, but like that's an extreme example, but you really, it's, hard, it's hard work if you're going to be, if you want to raise normal kids and you're really rich, and, you know, sometimes there are examples. We have two examples in public life right now of maybe someone who's where the, where the dad didn't do the, mom didn't do the right job. It's more than two. We have more than two examples. We have more than two. Yes, we do. Well, think about it, though. So if somebody's super successful, that would assume they're working their ass off. They're not home a lot. Yeah. You know, it's, they're, not, they're not really watching what's going on at home anyway. And so that, that's bad. That's number one. Number two, if the family's super wealthy, the kids don't have to work. They're not thinking about, oh, my God, they're not learning a work ethic at an early age. They're not, their brain's not churning. Oh, I got to get out of here. Like a lot of the success stories of anyone who's, who's just become super duper wealthy in America. It's a lot of times it's people who came from nothing. Yeah. You know, they came from scratch, they scrapped their way up. Yeah. You know, it's It's, a lot of like the Bob Kraft type thing. It's the can't, there's a, there's a, there's, I've forgotten who came up with this, but there's a great riff on this. It's called the can't won't problem which is that when you're poor and you're raising children and the kid says, I want a pony or whatever, I want, I want this, 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 you just say, we can't. And it's the end of the conversation. If you're rich and the kid says, I want a pony, you have to say, I, we can give you a pony, but we won't. Yeah. And being able, when you have to say, we won't, it's a lot harder. You have to be able to have a real conversation then and give reasons and have a philosophy of the family and... It's hard to say won't. It's super easy to say can't. And so these, these are families that have won't problems. Um, you know, the, I'm sure there were some won't problems in the Dolan. Papa Dolan could have said, I can give you the Knicks, but I won't. Well, remember <laughs> the, the Dolans had a whole thing where um, the dad, Charles, yeah. who almost bought the Browns at one point. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, in the late Just 90s. Think, I mean, is there no indignity that the, that the, the Browns the have Brown- not been... Well, it was him and Bill Cosby were two of the people trying to buy it. So whoever it turned out was probably better. But uh, Dolan Wait, was trying... Dolan, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Was Dolan trying to buy it with Cosby or were they in competition? I think there were three different bidders. There was a oh, Dolan group, there was a Cosby group. Because I was going to say, if it, if it was a Dolan, Dolan and, and Cosby, Cosby group, that's like the... Tr- it's one for the like, ages. That is one for the ages. So I'm going to say mid-2000s. Dolan was the the uh, the cablevision company was sinking all this money into basically a digital competitor for Directv and all that stuff. I think it was called Voom, something like that, Voom or Zoom, and it was just a disaster. And they were pouring money into it, and it wasn't working. And Dolan at that point, Charles Dolan was semi-retired, and James was running the whole thing. And James and the uh, the board members wanted to just get rid of it, write it off, whatever. And Charles wanted to keep it. And Charles and James went head to head. There's this huge article that when I was researching him last week that I didn't even know about, I think it was New York Magazine, about the Dolans like headed for this crash collision. Meanwhile, Charles Dolan had given James like, you know, every single thing that he had. So I, I did James have his father dragged out of the boardroom by no. two cops? <laughs> and then did he issue a statement saying his he really thinks his father should get treatment for he his did. issues? <laughs> it's He's he's running a mega company. Yeah, yeah. These That's are... the other thing. It's not like he's just the Knicks owner. He he owns the Rangers. He owns MSG. He runs Cablevision. And the reason, whenever remember this, every time you take the train into New York City 
and you walk through the cesspool that is Penn Station, ask yourself the question why the richest city in the world has one of the worst train stations imaginable. It is because of the Dolans. Is that true? You can't fix Penn Station until they move from Madison Square Garden. And they won't move from Madison Square Garden. Right? It's on top. How do you fix it? You got this aging, ridiculous arena on top, and the Dolans are, have, are, they're so off in their own little world that they think that basketball is more important than the commuting experience of millions of New Yorkers every day. Well, and he also squashed a football stadium that would have been yeah. Midtown, right? Because yeah. he said it was a competitive thing. He won. That I mean, was he, a shame. He that should. would have been awesome. By the way, they have the money. They should, if they want to build themselves, they could build themselves a, a gorgeous state of the art arena, which would also make it easier to get. Free agents. I don't know if I'm if I'm a free agent. Why on earth would I come to New York? Because you're in New York City. No, but I'm th- would you play to play for the Knicks? Who wants? I don't that? think. I think ultimately these guys talk themselves into anything. I don't know. When you think, I think they look at variables that maybe we're not even you and I wouldn't look at. Bill, if I was, let's say I'm a t- I'm a top five free agent and I'm considering various places to go. First of all, there's all kinds of reasons not to want to... Remember, New York has some strikes against it. Taxes, all kinds of reasons. But you look at a franchise that basically has sucked for how many years now? Since the Riley years. I so, think they have like two playoff series, three playoff series victories in 17 years. Deeply like dysfunctional organization. Yeah. Uh, a lunatic owner and high... Uh, both city and state tax. You're paying both city and state taxes. Well, if you live in the city, definitely state. People don't understand. You're an accountant. If you're if you're a free agent and you say you want to play for the Knicks, the first call you get is from your accountant who says no. <laughs> right? So like they're powerful. I mean, it's no accident that when those guys talk about whenever those free agents get down go down the list of places they want to go to, there's always a Florida team and there's always a Texas team, right? No accident. No state income tax. That's what that's about. And you know. If I was one of the other owners, I would be fighting for them to have less of a salary cap, Texas and Florida. Oh, because of that tax I would advantage. say they should pay like 5% less than everyone else. Yeah. I wrote in my, my uh, mailbag today about that I think the Seattle expansion team's coming in the next three to four years. Oh, that's interesting. And for a couple of reasons. One, because I think there's enough players now where they could get away with 32 teams, and 32 is a better number anyway. It would allow them to do a couple of different things. I don't know what the 32nd team would be. Seattle, 100%. But the 32nd team, you could be, it could be Vegas. It could be Mexico City. It could be Louisville. Like, who knows? But so let's say Seattle goes in. I, I've heard 2.1 would be the number. So every owner would just get a, a uh, I think it's a $30 million. No, what's 30 into $2.1 million? $70 million check. Nice. Okay, here's your check. Cash it, 70 mil. And then they probably have to sit out the media rights thing for a couple of years. But can you imagine all the variables coming from a Seattle expansion team? You get the Sonics back. You have this team that has an unlimited cap space that could just completely screw up the whole salary system for that league. Seattle would have a team again. You'd have all the businesses in there. and they, like When you look at what's happened with, with uh, the Warriors which we could see it was sitting there for years and years and years. And now it's like, that's the wealthiest group of people that go to an, uh, any sporting event, game after game after game, just yeah. loaded. They're building this arena on the, on basically on the ocean in San Francisco, not the ocean, the, the water. China Basin, yeah. 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 And it's going to be this state-of-the-art complex. That team has gone, they bought it from 370. I would say it's worth 3 billion easy now. Yeah. 
And uh, I don't know where this is going because the meteorites and China and the fact that anybody in the world will be able to have league pass in three to four years. There's so much money coming in the league. I don't know where it ends. And the Seattle thing gets crazier by the day because Seattle, you know, they do that. You know how in real, in real estate they do the crane count? Yeah. The crane count this is the number of you, you measure the construction activity in a city by the number of cranes in oh, operation like within I like the, simple stats like right, this. Yeah. So, so you do the crane. So for years they would do the crane count in, on, in China in the aughts was like off the – no one had seen a crane – or in Dubai in 2004. There was a – I think there's, they keep track of like what the record crane counts are. I think I'm right. I think that Seattle's got the largest crane count in North America right now. Oh. Seattle is – booming i love so you've Seattle. got you've got you've got amazon you've got microsoft but now you've got a whole other those are the kind of stalwarts of the tech scene but now you've got a whole burgeoning tech scene the downtown core is exploding the crane counts through the roof how is there not a how team is there, there not a team there how does new orleans <laughs> god bless new orleans but how does new orleans have a team over seattle it is kind of it is it's, kind it's of like really incredible weird. yeah how does yeah. memphis have it like all great cities, no offense, but Seattle is, I would Wait, say, one of the, the eco- top seven biggest cities we have. What is the economically weakest NBA franchise? New Orleans. It is New Orleans. Yeah. Yeah. New Orleans, so, and they're not even, I think they're getting like 13,000, 14,000 people a game, but they have the worst TV contract, the whole thing. So they, are you, the, are you the saying, league has been very loyal to New Orleans, which they get credit for. Are you saying that the Seattle franchise is a, you're, you're saying it's a new franchise, not a move? It would be an expansion team, yeah. Oh, I see, yeah. 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 And what they would do with the other one, you know, we'll see how this Vegas thing goes. We'll see if there's ever a football team there. That was one of my favorite secret stories. Rich, when rich guys go to war. The, the Sheldon yeah. Adelson, who's like yeah. basically uh, the godfather of Vegas, and he's going to help the Raiders build this stadium. And somehow they had a falling out. He's out. He's basically giving them $750 million or whatever to help them build it. He's out. Not only is he out, but then you can't cross him. So I don't think they can go to Vegas anymore. But they shouldn't because why not stay in Oakland, which is another one of the fastest growing cities. Yeah, it's, The Bay Area could support two teams. It's always puzzled, it's always puzzled me why the Raiders, Raiders have had this ambivalence towards Oakland, particularly now. I mean, it's like one of the great markets in the Well, that's, that's another turning leg- into one of the great That's markets. another legacy kid. Oh, Al right. Davis' son. Oh, right. Yeah, that's yeah. another one which is like, yeah, why, please help me, but just sell the team. <laughs> just sell it. Sell the team. You're sitting on a giant asset. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. It's like Oklahoma City. That's another one. They, they, they buy the team from Seattle. They move it to Oklahoma City. They basically steal the team and move it. The stadium that they're, the arena that they're playing in isn't any better or worse than the Seattle one was. It's a much worse market with a much lower TV revenue. So they cut costs left and right. The only time they really spent a ton of money was last year because they were trying to keep Durant. Now now they've gone back the other way and they're going back into money-saving mode a little bit. But the team's like tripled in value. Yeah. They got and no- yet, you, you'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you lost a tiny bit of money last year. You, the team that you bought for $300 million is worth like $1.5. I think you'll make it. <laughs> Wait, Maybe take out a loan. Bill, did you ever... <clears throat> I know in the... You guys talked about a little bit of this when you had Durant on the show, but yeah, the if the could the uh, did the economics work for the Thunder to keep the core of Harden, Westbrook, oh, and Durant fuck together? Yeah, hundred percent. The thing when they traded Harden, they didn't have to trade him when they did. 
because he he was making like I think four and a half or five million a year. It was like what what was going to happen with his free agency? They could have signed him to an extension. It wouldn't. It would have kicked in the following year. They had all these outs that could have amnestied Kendrick Perkins and all that stuff. They could have taken a hit for a year and lost some money. Yeah, but it's just know, a qu- oh, I see. Just a question of how much luxury tax they were willing. Yeah, to pay maybe they lose a little bit of money, but they still have, would have three of the best young players in the league. I, I mean, my theory on that has always been that they really liked the trade that they made. They yeah. were getting. They got. They thought Kevin Martin could replace Harden's offense. They were getting this pick that they thought was going to be a high lottery pick, and they really liked Jeremy Lamb, and they just liked the trade. They didn't know Harden was going to be as good as he was. Yeah. And now it's turned into this revisionist history. It came down to like, you know, four or five million bucks. It was like he wanted 58 and they wanted to pay 53 or whatever. But I want to talk about that Durant thing. But first, quick break to talk about SoFi. If you've worked hard to get the career you want, SoFi's here to offer easy savings on the student loans that helped you get there. You like these little breaks because you can go on your phone. If you've taken out student <laughs> loans to invest in yourself or your career, SoFi wants to help out. Attending college and following your passions is an investment, but with student debt, it can be quite the burden. Student debt, terrible. It is. The worst. Don't I get know me, many people who have their lives on ruined by student debt. One of my favorite topics. SoFi is in the business of helping you pay off student debt faster. As the leader in student loan refinancing, SoFi refinances federal and private student loans to save its members an average of 22359 total. Average monthly savings at 288 Depending on your eligibility, SoFi pays off all your existing student loans and gives you one new loan with a lower interest rate, no, no origination fees, no catch. The whole application process fast and easy can be done online. SoFi support team. A phone call away if you need. The idea is simple. You've worked hard to get where you are. SoFi wants to help you focus less on debt, more in the future. Get a $100 welcome bonus when you refinance at SoFi.com slash BS. S-O-F-I.com slash BS. Terms and conditions apply. See SoFi.com slash legal. Loans originated by SoFi Lending Corps. California Finance Lender Law. License number 605-4612. NMLS ID number 112-1636. Kevin Durant. KD. I asked you. I was fascinated by, and a lot of people were, people really loved that podcast about how candid he was. Mm -hmm. And he just went into it and he was like, I'm just going to be a real dude. This is who I am. Let's have let's shoot the shit about stuff. Ask me anything you want. And we went and it was great. And it was it was really fun except for the fact that I was half asleep because it was like one in the morning. Are athletes hitting a place now where it's either going one of two ways? They completely control the process and you're getting their little very carefully thought out presentation of whatever they want to pretend they are. Or they're going the other way and they're just completely candid and there's nothing in the middle anymore. Where do you see this going? Well, I'd make a distinction between athletes and basketball players. Okay. Uh, because I think, thinking about this, you know, basketball players, what's interesting about basketball in the last 10 years is that basketball has moved into the center of the culture. There's nothing else in the center of the culture. Everything else has been chopped up a million ways. I, I, was, I thought about this because I was interviewing, I read this book on Bob Hope. Oh, it was really great. And then Bob I, Hope. And then I went and talked to the guy who wrote the book, Richard Zogelin. We had a great conversation. And he was talking about how this thing about hope, Bob Hope's specials, he used to do these specials on TV. They are, to this day, if you look on the list of all-time most watched television programs, he's still in the top 10. These are, wow. This is like 40 years ago. <laughs> Bob Hope was, for a period of about 20 years, squarely in the middle of... of 
American culture. He was on TV. He was on radio. He was had his the Bob Hope Desert Classic. He was a he had a sports presence. He was in the movies. He was you know he did Bing Crosby. I mean there was he completely dominated media. And it's it's from the fifties through the end of the sixties, maybe into the seventies. Oh, I think it goes all the way through the seventies because I always felt like he was an uncle. He was an he's un- just on TV he's, all the time. I'd watch his shows. I was feeling like he's doing part of the, the family. He's doing the, he really makes the Academy Awards, the Oscars, what the Oscars are, because yep. he's the host for like he's the first 15 grade times. Yeah. Um, but that was, you know, that kind of figure was possible in an age when there's three television networks and whatever. That, of course, in most cases is impossible now. You've got, everything's been chopped up a million ways. So the question is, what's left in the middle? And I think what's left in the middle is basketball. Basketball is the only, is music in the middle anymore? No. No. In the 70s and 60s, you're, I'm sitting in your office surrounded by all these musical posters, you know, Fleetwood Mac and the Doobie Doobie Brothers Brothers and all these people in their day were the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, were absolutely essential. You could not, if you were in high school in 1972, you could not find a member of your graduating class who didn't either own a Rolling Stones album or listen to the Rolling Stones or could sing a Rolling Stones song. There is no band today about which that can be said, right? That's why they have so much trouble booking the Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah. It's like there's who, nobody in the middle. There's no one in the middle. Yeah. So who's in the middle? I would argue that someone like Steph is in the middle. KD is in the middle. Steph's the most middle of any middle. He's the most middle of... He's the m- middlest. He is the middlest of the... But only basketball. These guys have international followings. They are personalities that we get to know they have careers that are long enough that we can that they become almost like friends to us we we actually see them as opposed to football where you don't because you don't see i don't think you can ever have a relationship with and there's so many on a team and football is like such a kind of pre-modern pre-digital age sport but basketball just seems like the last thing that can women watch basketball in a way they don't you know follow football i don't know i i feel like so Basketball special, and then within basketball, KD is special, and the per- and a lot of the personalities have become super distinct. Yeah, and which he, is a really hard place to get to. But my point is, if you're in the middle, you can be yourself because what you're selling is he's what KD represents is himself. He's 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 selling authenticity, which you can do. And but when you're on the fringes, you have to play some complicated game. He doesn't have to play any games, right? He can. He can walk down any street in America and people know who he is and relate to him. And so I don't know. I, I just feel like the rules are different for a kind of a, a big time basketball player than for almost anyone else in the culture. How funny is that, that this is the case now in 2017, where 40 years ago, the league is starting to go down in the tubes because it's too black. And yeah. everybody's like, the league's too black. These guys are on drugs. Yeah. We can't. We can't. We got to put. We can't even show playoff games during prime time. We got to move them to moon eleven thirty. Yeah, it's the all black league. It was like super. We've talked about this a million times, but it was just so. There's this really racist stretch of coverage of the league from seventy eight to eighty three, basically, where they're all just dancing around what the problems are, and the problems where it was a black league for a white audience. Well, let's not remember. You know, and now that's a good thing. People think that so. The Supreme Court passes Brown versus Board of Education desegregating schools in 54. Yep. Nothing happens for 15 years. So 
we think of desegregation as something that happened in the 50s. No, no, no. It happened in a few symbolic places. The real desegregation, particularly in the South, does not happen until the end of the 60s and the early 70s. So when you're talking about people complaining about the league being too black in the late 70s, early 80s, they're 10 years away from complaining about black people in their children. In in general, yes. So it's like, doesn't surprise me. By the way, it wasn't 10 years, (laughs) because like when I was growing up in Boston, we had the whole busing thing. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, you had goes white, white people, and this is this is why when people say Boston's race country and all that stuff, it really stems from what happened in the mid seventies and the residue of that and how horrible it was. So you had white people standing outside buses and protesting that black kids were coming into their kids' school, and it was horrible. But this was like I remember this; I was six. Yeah. Yeah. This was happening, really. And <clears throat> so that leads to the league, and I I, th- I still think Kareem. The fact that he was the face of the league there for a few years and he was so inaccessible and just when you look at you compare him to the guys that we have now and Kareem Kareem now would fit in because he'd be kind of the intellectual oddball he would be amazing and and if anything he does fit in now because he's a really I think his writing's really good I like his takes on stuff he's reinvented himself as his media personality successfully he's good at it it's almost like Kareem Kareem was 40 years early like now that you put Kareem now and Bill yeah. Walton now into what the league is. Bill Walton was like reviled in the in the seventies for a couple of years. Like, look at his hair. He won't play for Team USA. He doesn't believe in this country. Go. And, maybe you should leave. You know, a lot of that stuff. And, and, and if memory serves, for being kind of seen as excessively healthy. He ate well. He rode a bike. He rode a bike. <laughs> it's like, you know. He was politically <laughs> active. How dare you have opinions <laughs> of politics? Wait, this is really fun. So there's a whole class of players who work way better. So Walton in, I mean. Well, Dr. J was as middle as it gets then. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's, he's like the Steph Curry of that era. It's like he's one of the few that it's like, oh, white people like Dr. J. So wait, but let's move players from the present. Who would work? Who's who's around now? Who would work? Who would have worked really well in '75? Kawhi Leonard. Oh yeah, Kawhi. Yeah, Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> he would have been the John Havlicek of that era. See, I think the other way, like Daryl Dawkins, has a completely different career. Four years later, the yeah. Chocolate Thunder, the nicknames, the. Yes. If yeah. he broke a backboard during the game, that would have been the biggest Twitter moment of the entire year. All that stuff. I think World Be Free has a totally different Just career. Just the name alone. Yeah. Maybe the great it's maybe one of the it's maybe the greatest basketball name. I ever. think Rick Barry is even more despised. <laughs> like, no, it's I, even worse for Rick Barry. You you love Rick Barry. I love Rick Barry. Yeah. I did too. No, I, I ranked him twenty fourth. I don't know why he's mad at me. No, Rick Barry works better in way better in the present day than he does back then. Yeah. Because what he is is he's that kind of uh Rick, who was Rick Barry? Rick Barry is essentially um, uh, uh, memory is a dick. Oh, no, 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 sorry, no, he's not. He is um, Allen. What's his name? Ray Allen. Ray Allen. No, he's a he's super driven OCD, just he's trying just repetition guy. Yeah. And we're fine with Ray Allen now because we're really comfortable with the idea of the perfectionist in sports. Because sports has gotten the the kind of the level of the play, of play has been raised so much, and the level of preparation and practice, the perfectionists are now at home in the world. The problem with Rick Barry, he's a perfectionist in an era that is the it is it, it, which is the antithesis of perfectionism. Where they're in a league where they're smoking cigarettes at halftime in the locker room, how can they deal with Rick Barry, who's like who wants to you know make do everything exactly the right way? You're also talking about the heyday of when people were just completely unself-aware. 
So Rick Barry's yeah. doing all this stuff, but there's nobody calling him out on it. And so when somebody writes a magazine piece criticizing him, it comes out of nowhere. It's like hitting with an anvil. But you think about like the way pop culture was, and this is why some of that stuff's so funny from Mac, but like the first battle of the network stars, which is 1976, which is right when Rick Barry was at his peak. And you have this moment when Robert Conrad gets mad at Gabe Kaplan. He thinks Gabe Kaplan's team, and he challenges him to a 100-yard dash. And this is on YouTube. Telly Savalas comes in, who was the biggest blowhard of that entire decade. And he comes in, and he's just being Telly Savalas, and he's just a blowhard. But that that's who he was. His whole shtick was like, I'm the bald Greek blowhard Wait, I'm completely Battle full of, of myself. Was- that would never work now. Wait, Telly Savalas was participating in athletic competition. He's got like a little stogie and he's just insulting everybody. And then Robert Conrad comes in. He he makes this veiled German Jewish Holocaust reference, which is like all of it's insane. It's bananas. It's just nobody knew everybody was completely not aware. I'm stunned by the fact that these, that totally out of shape stars. I'm going to send you the link. I have to watch the first this. battle of the network stars is one of the greatest two hours and it all culminates in robert conrad who literally has a cigarette right before the race like he's having a cigarette as he's challenging gabe kaplan thinking that he could just beat gabe kaplan in a race who wins who wins the race gabe kaplan wins the race gabe kaplan, gabe kaplan with his his little afro and his mustache oh takes God. on german bob conrad and dusts him and then Conrad comes over and he's like, that was a man-to-man situation. Like, and nobody knew. So my, anyway, now it's now it's the opposite. Everybody's completely self-aware and always thinking about how they're presenting themselves. My friend, uh, David Epstein, who's like the best writer on track Sports Gene. Sports Gene. He, at one point, went through all of those old Battle of the Network stars because it's the only chance you get to see about crossover potential. So how fast, to answer the question, how fast can... A football wide receiver run the half he mile. He studied the battle. Of yes, stars? he did. He did. Wow. He sent me the stats once because he was like, "We, you know, track athletes are constantly having this question of how fast can X run a race, right? Because yeah. no one, because no one runs, we're 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 left sort of um, fantasizing. So his question was, you know, remember a there's a there's a there's a half mile once, and I just I remember that James Lofton, for example, the yeah great uh, Green Bay wide receiver. He runs the half mile. Now, that's a really good, interesting question. Uh, Consider one of the fastest, you know, greatest wide receivers of his era. Steps on the track. How fast can he run 800 meters? The answer is slower than you'd think. Hmm. Surprisingly not good. But there's every now and again, there's kind of the guy who was, um, uh, was, I noticed separately, was an extraordinary runner, was, um, uh, God, he played for the, Played for Houston in the 70s, notoriously crazy, uh, came out of Florida. What's his name? Um, not, tr- not Earl Campbell. No, 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 no. I'm talking about a basketball player. Oh. Uh, was his last name Maxwell? I don't know. Vernon Maxwell? Vernon no. Maxwell. Vernon Maxwell, some guy who played basketball at Florida with Vernon Maxwell, said that their coach made them pl- run half miles. And Vernon Maxwell showed up uh, hungover, if not high. Like at last moment, got on the track and ran under two minutes for a half mile. Now, just to put that in perspective, he's first of all he's six foot, 
basketball players are not natural distance runners. They're way too big. Yeah. They're way too heavy. So what's Maxwell? He's probably 6'6". Six, six. Yeah, he was a skinny shooting guard. No, he was like 6'3". Oh, so he was? Yeah. Oh, I thought he was bigger. But he, I mean, there's a guy who could, I mean, he's not training for it. You see that kind of talent. Anyway, we're fascinated with this. So that was, David went through We think about it. like what's, yeah, what's the perfect body type for every event? You know, like you would have said, you would have guessed it would have been somebody that looked like Usain Bolt and then Usain Bolt actually happened, right? But it would have to be somebody who's taller, yeah, who has long strides, who gains steam as it goes along and can work the eventual miles an hour that he gets to is just, you can't, you can't compete with it. Yeah. Versus ben, like that 5'10 quick Ben Johnson guy. He's I would not say a, Usain Bolt is always built to be better, but I'd love to know like... What's the perfect decathlete body? What's the well, perfect long jump we know. body? I mean, you, we know by looking at... The Daley Thompson, Bruce Jenner type Bruce bodies. Jenner. Yeah. They're, they're always uh, Ashton Eaton. They're always um, a little smaller than you think they're going to be. Uh, when you, Ashton Eaton used to post his workouts online, and he, was, he wasn't... You, you realized how much he was running away from anything that would bulk him up. They have to be... Right. Um, which, you know, this reminds me of yesterday on this track magazine, this guy, Paul Snyder, <clears throat> who's this hilarious writer, ranked, imagine if all the U.S. presidents in history ran a 5K, who would win? And he <laughs> ranks them all. And it's this hilarious thing. Who was one? Well, it, it, w. George FDR w. was last? George W. Bush is clearly the winner. He, he was W. Bush. He was a good, he's a good athlete. Yeah. Oh, he's a really good athlete. A very, but it's a strong case to be made. So the question about Obama is, he never, he smokes, so if and the rule of the <laughs> the rule of the thing was you had to get them as they were. Okay. But I'm gonna if you change the rules and you say I take them all at their their athletic apex at the apex and I give them two months of training, then I think Obama wins easily because he he is half Canyon. So he's fifty percent of the greatest <laughs> distance running like you know country right. in the history of distance running. The he's DNA got, helps him. He's, he's built like a runner. He's not yeah. a basketball build. He's a running build. He's, he's, like, he's like a lean, super lean, right? Those long, graceful strides. I mean, I think he's going to win ultimately. But W, and then third, the, the feeling was that Abe Lincoln would be third because... Abe uh, Lincoln? Yeah. He's Abe. like 6'5". Yeah, but the thing about it... I don't think the Abe Lincoln thing at all. I no, 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 because it's, super it's, gawky. It's about, it's about being lean. I mean, being a good distance runner is all about how lean you are. He was lean because nobody had grocery stores back then. <laughs> no, he had Marfan syndrome is why he's lean. He has a physical condition. He had Marfan syndrome? Yes, he's got Marfan syndrome. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abe totally. Lincoln? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was that why he died? Oh, no, he got no, shot no, at a play. Right, yeah. shot. But, um, the, uh, but the, the, when you look at the field, though, you realize how rare it is for us to have a lean president. They're not lean. We, we keep electing the same thing over and over again, which is the tall, heavy-set white guy. We've had two deviations from that. Lincoln, the skinny white guy, and Obama, the skinny black guy. Everyone else is the heavy-set, tall white guy. I actually looked this up once. I think we've only had one president, and that's Jimmy Carter, in the modern era who's under 5'11". So Corolla... My friend Adam Crow always had a theory about this. He always thought that our president, it didn't totally matter and that we should always just just uh, elect a six foot four <laughs> guy who, who just had a really strong handshake and good facial hair <laughs> and looked did, like a locksmith from the 1870s. And that should just be the guy we sent out. Speaking of handshake, did you see there's a... Canadians are obsessed with when last week Justin Trudeau, Canadian Prime Minister, comes to visit uh, um, Trump and they... There's a, all this video footage of them shaking hands, 
And so Trump has a very distinctive handshake, which is he does the power grab. What he does is he extends his arm when you're still not close. You're not, you're still, you're approaching. He's standing still. You're approaching him. And when you, you think you're still too far away for the handshake, he extends his arm out, grabs your hand and pulls you in. Right? So you're like off balance? Total power move. And then he does the big grip, and you're just, yeah, you're totally off balance. He dominates the situation. I think Roger Goodell does this too. Yeah, oh, yeah. He sure did he that does. with Tom Brady. Sure he does. He reached out, reached out and pulled him toward but him. Justin Trudeau clearly studied the tape and gamed him. So Trudeau jumps. Trudeau's like, you know, he's in his, I, I don't know, he's maybe 40. He's in massively good shape, super handsome, jumps out of the limo. He's coming, striding into the door of the White House. Trump is standing there, and Trump's going to do his move, right, to extend the hand. And what Trudeau does is he closes on him. So he comes in really, really hard and fast. Like closes like a cornerback. Totally does. Comes in, <laughs> comes in high and tight, and, and he's the one who grabs Trump's arm. He completely turns it upside down, and then they start pumping, and neither will give in. Yeah. It's just it's seven seconds of pumping. Do you know how that's a long time for a handshake that's a lot. pump? But the idea that Trump got owned at the White House by his, by his Canadian counterpart, this, is, this was huge in Canada huge it was like a it was like a thing on twitter you couldn't I saw, believe i didn't know about it till it was on the cover of handshake illustrated <laughs> <laughs> which i get every week uh i we, think that accounted for why trump was in such a grouchy mood all week because he lost the handshake he, he to lost the hand- Trudeau. this is a guy who thinks he has thought a lot about dominating the handshake right if if there's a handshake montage on uh, on YouTube, could somebody send that to me? Quick break to talk about stamps.com. Avoid the post office during the holidays. Buy and print official U.S. postage with your own computer and printer. This is like what, almost what we were talking about earlier about evolution of things. Exactly. Like, it's so stupid. We go to the post office. Why would you go to the post Why office? Would you? Why, Why would, would you? you? You could do everything from home. Postage rates have gone up again. That means trips to the post office are an even bigger hassle thanks to Stamps.com. You don't have to worry about it. Use Stamps.com to automatically calculate and print the correct amount of postage. For every letter or package you send, Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer or printer. They'll send you a digital scale to automatically calculate exact postage. They'll decide the best class of mail based on your needs. They give you postage discounts you can't get at the post office including three cents off every first-class stamp. Right now, use my code BS for this special offer. A four-week trial includes postage and a digital scale. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in BS, my initials. That's stamps.com, enter BS, sign up today with stamps.com. You will never have to go to the post office again. Stamps.com, enter BS. I had in my mailbag today, Markel Fultz is going to be the number one pick, and his initials are MF. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> That's huge. MF is, we've been waiting. We've had KD. We've had all these boring ones. KD, KG, CP. Now we have an MF. That, that is. This guy's a bad MF, Tate. Bad MF. So MF, <laughs> MF and F. Wait, we didn't talk about. Uh, tennis? No, we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about. Uh, <laughs> have you ever talked about tennis on your podcast? I'm ready to talk about tennis, but we didn't talk about. You never gave me your theory on whether you think athletes are. You talked about the middle, and you talked about the candid ones, and we the the, the road is paved for Durant to just be candid, do whatever he wants. So uh, why why no? Is, I'm just saying he has the luxury of being why in the is, middle. Why is somebody like LeBron so afraid to do that? Why is LeBron so carefully calculated with every public decision he makes? 
I don't know. I mean, is it just their different personality? I mean, Katie, the thing that came, I've never heard him at such length as I heard him on your podcast. And he, I mean, he, he sounds like he's an unusually charming, thoughtful, perceptive, perceptive, I would say perceptive, kind of reflective guy. I mean, that kind of guy, he can be himself because when he is himself, he's so incredibly appealing, right? Same thing with, to hark, I don't mean to hark back to Bob Hope, but the point about Bob Hope, back in those days, those, uh, someone like Bob Hope, they referred to themselves as entertainers. Yeah. It's really, no one does anymore. And they're, I was reading the... This Jimmy, I should tell Kimmel to start doing that. He should be. And He's just an entertainer. And I was reading, don't ask me why, but I was reading the... Uh, Autobiography of um, Sammy Davis Jr., which is which is so you're just cranking out seventies biographies. I am, I am, which is by the way bonkers. But anyway, well, he I was had reading a lot it. of sex, Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, he did. He had a lot he, of sex, he, he, he like did. he really yeah. did. Yeah, but he also he was obsessed with the notion that he was an entertainer, right? Yeah, but that's but that you know what they mean is that when you're in the center, those guys were in the center. When you're in the center, you you're not a thing. You're not an actor or a singer or a comedian. You're yourself. The entertainer is someone who, by definition, plays themselves in a variety of different so Le- contexts. LeBron's an entertainer. <clears throat> but I wonder whether he has enough, as much kind of self-confidence in his self as Katie does. Katie knows he's charming, right? Yeah. He didn't have any anxieties about that. But I, don't, I wonder whether is, 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 is LeBron is sure of that fact. I mean, I, you know, Michael Jordan knows he's not charming, right? He's not. He's not, right? He's not. Um, Larry Bird's not charming. But these guys who truly will, you know, will occupy the like, He's Indiana charming. Well, we, he's, when, we, when we did the podcast with him in 2012, like he's like definitely a down-home dude. There, did you hear, uh, I, I was listening to Ezra Edelman talk about how when he did the Magic and the Bird documentary for 30 for 30. Yeah. Uh, how he's try- he goes the whole thing hinges on him getting Bird to talk about it. Yeah, and he, and you know Bird doesn't want to do it, and they sort of meet in the basement of Conseco Fieldhouse, and like Bird gives them I forgot what it is like an hour, and then done right. Yeah, and the whole time Edelman's sitting there and thinking if this doesn't go well, my whole my Your whole movie is out. Yeah, is out. It doesn't work. It's like it was, it's a really really great riff he does. It's on um, the podcast long form. Um, I had a phenomenal, I heard a phenomenal interview. Magic was on Stephen A. Smith's show, his uh, radio show. Uh-huh. And it was actually really, it was really entertaining. But Magic was like, Magic's like getting more involved with the Lakers. Mm-hmm. And Stephen A. Smith was asking him, you know, what are the kind of stuff you're going to do? And Magic, he basically had the idea of, you know, a little bit of like what the Warriors do, where they they have a whole bunch of people in their inner circle. And he's like, you know... I got James Worthy. He's doing TV. I'm going to ask him what he thinks. And Robert Horry's got some rings. I'm going to ask him what he thinks. And he just starts listing players he played with. And uh, I'm thinking like, man, this is going to be great. <laughs> magic, magic, making. And he's like, and what I've been doing the last couple of weeks is reading up on the CBA and trying to understand that. The salary caps. I was like, oh, man. It's, a, it, it's just a gift that keeps on giving for me. Yeah. There's always going to be bad people in charge of teams. Now, Magic might be good, and he's you know, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. I don't think this is a job you could just jump into. It's really complicated, and, and there's a lot of time and effort and energy that goes into it. This is why the Phil Jackson thing was so hilarious. 
Yeah. It's like Phil Jackson at age 70 is just going to start running a team. He's going okay, to be going to Spain, checking out prospects. He's I mean, 70. Magic, Magic's crowdsourcing. He wants to crowdsource personnel decisions among NBA veterans. People that he played with. It's not a bad idea. Oh, he, well, I kind of like that idea. I don't know. Like, I mean, this, so look, you're 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 pro. Jeez, worthy. You've been sitting in a studio for eight years. Any thoughts on Markel Fultz? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Someone has. I have yet to be convinced that there is um, any great predictability to uh, player selection in any of the professional leagues. It is ultimately, particularly football, but less so. It's ultimately a roll of the dice, and half the guys, not all of them, at least half of the people who are called wizards of you know, talent evaluation are not wizards of talent evaluation. They got lucky. I think there's a couple variables that if they exist are a better predictor. How hard does the guy work? You know, that was one of the reasons I, I really like Jalen Brown and the Celtics. I don't think he's going to be like LeBron or anything, but one of the things they liked about him is he's one of those first guy at the gym, last guy to leave guys. That seems to be a trend, right? Westbrook, anything you read about Westbrook. Yeah is just this guy's been driven to just kind of shove it in everyone's face. That's another thing, the chip on the shoulder. The guys that have had it handed to them, that's what, one of the reasons I like Moneyball so much. Moneyball's about this guy, Billy Bean, who you know. Um, but he was just, had all the tools, but something was missing. Like, he didn't have the confidence. He didn't have, he just didn't, was missing that one little piece, and he became obsessed with, okay, how do I predict performance? Because I should have been somebody that made it, and I didn't. And I think, I think when you look at work ethic, sense of the moment, you know, Lonzo Ball, who I loved anyway, the way he sees the floor, the way he uses his teammates, I, I just think he's like once in a decade special, just mentally as a basketball yeah. player. They played Arizona the other night. They came back. No, it wasn't Arizona. It was Oregon. Came back from 20 down. He's, he's basically distributing the whole game. He didn't even shoot that well. 30 seconds left. Crowd's going crazy. They have the ball. And he takes this 30-foot three and makes it. And But when he took it, he's like, I'm making this. And I was like, that's it. That's all I need to see. That guy's fucking great. You know, so I, I think it's when you see that versus like the Darko Millis, Milicic, oh, this guy, if, 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 and this, if, this. Those are the guys that usually end up getting people fired. The, the um, people who look great on paper. I, I think there has to be some element of you're already doing it. Yeah, and then if you can add the chip on your shoulder, like there's this guy in Kentucky, Malik Monk, who you're gonna fall in love with uh, during the tournament. He just makes baskets. He's just good at it. He shoots threes, does stuff. Like he's just really good. He's specifically uniquely talented, and gets better when it matters. But he's an inch too short. So really, he's too short. Can't guard anyone. But is it? I mean, I can see a lot of those. All those rules make sense. But the difficulty is that um, most of the players in the draft don't easily fit into those categories, right? So right. we can identify the three players who we think are reasonably good, can't-miss prospects. But, you know, you're at the bottom of the first round. You, like, at that point, you just have to start looking at what's what's this guy's one elite thing that he does. Is he a good is he an energy rebounder? Great. That makes sense. I could put him here. Can he shoot? That's good. See, see a point guard who can handle the ball and play good D. All right, that meant. So I, I think when you have the guys who are like, "Oh, that guy's a good athlete," that's when you get in trouble. But you know, there, there's no real science to it. Well, that's my, that's my point. You have to love playing basketball and have a real work ethic. That was Odin's problem. You know, Odin had 
he, obviously his body broke down, but he, some of these guys play because they're tall. Yeah. That's also a problem. In the sports team. I don't know if Dwight Howard ever wanted to play basketball. I think he was just tall. Yeah. Well, I, I, the other question is, who wants to play basketball with Dwight Howard? That's a bigger <laughs> Dwight Howard problem. <laughs> but sometimes circumstance really helps too, right? And this is, Durant and I talked about this. Like, is James Harden James Harden if he just stays in OKC? No. He needed to be on his own team. He needed to spread his wings a little no, and do his own I, thing. I thought, at that point in the podcast, I wondered... So clearly James Harden, if they keep the Thunder core together, Harden's a different player because he's just not going to get the ball that much. And Westbrook is a different player because he's not going to get the ball all the time. So they all evolve in very, very different directions. It actually would have been better for all of their games. I was going to say, that's what I was going to say. I think that that, surely that's the greatest team of the modern era if if they keep it together. I mean, it's... It's... It would have been, yeah, we're definitely in the last 10 years at the highest upside. And perfectly positioned to dominate in the, in the kind of basketball that's getting played right now. Well, right? Then, yeah, exactly. You'd think about, you'd want perimeter guys. Three, those are three of the best. But, I mean, the irony of the fact that those are probably three of, those could be three first-team All-NBA guys. And they had them all on the same team. It's a good what-if. But, like, you think about, that was our last chance Unless Philly just keeps doing the process for another 10 years until they get three guys. That might have been our last chance to have three great guys on the same team. In the 80s, that was something that just happened. Wait, what about the Warriors? They have four. They have two. You only think two? Curry and Durant are great. You don't think Clay Thompson is? I think he's excellent. Yeah. I think Draymond's excellent. I don't think they're great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the difference. Wait, wait, let's talk about tennis. Well, I watched, I taped. I Federer, the, the Australian Open. Did you watch the Australian Open? I taped it and watched it after I the fact. It, it was very entertaining. It was more than very entertaining. It was, I thought it was riveting. Um, but it's, it was riveting and it reminds me of why tennis is doomed. Why it's doomed. It's okay. doomed. You cannot, I was, I as a little preparation for this. I went down and looked at the top uh, five the men's single, same is true on the women's side, by the way, but men's singles top five rankings in every year of the last 10 years. And, you know, you know exactly what you're going to find. You're going to find endless variations on uh, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, and then every now and again you little get Andy, Andy Murray, Murray yeah. and then a little Stan Rinka, and then a little whatever. And, like, you cannot, this game is aging in place. And you watch that thing, you watch Nadal and Federer, and you're like, these guys are in their mid thirty or early and mid thirties. Is there any reason to believe Federer can't keep playing at that level for another two or three years? I mean, he's not as good as he once was. But there's no one who's under him who's threatening him. All the other guys fall away in the quarters, right? And it happens every single. Um, and they're playing fewer matches now. So now you know Serena plays. She plays the majors and she plays like, you know, two or three others. Same right. with Federer. They, these guys can go forever. Can you, can you... Better training, better dieting, better like, but other can, things. Can you sell a sport? <laughs> yes, <laughs> sorry, I just missed that one. Um, yes, some other things. Get other thrown things into the mix. Might help. Yeah. Um, Vitamins. By the way, I, I'm now going to completely go off on a tangent. Speaking of other things. Uh, well, no, no, I'll come back to that. Uh, you can't keep selling a sport... With the same people for 15 years. I mean, it's just, it doesn't... So, t- what you just said about Federer was basically the same thing that happened to Michael Jordan. 
when it should have when the next generation should have come up and passed him, it wasn't ready yet. And he was able to extend it with those last two Utah finals. Yeah. It just, the, ne- the next generation never arrived. But and see- then it are belatedly arrived. Yeah. But I think with Federer, it's the same thing. You, there should be some 22 year old Pete Sampras circa 1990 guy who should Jack just Sock. be destroying everyone. <laughs> who is it? Jack Sock. Jack. But there's take, every take year, every year there's a new one. Yeah, every, every year there's a new one. And they, I think it must be so demoralizing. If I'm a 16-year-old tennis player, and I look at what's happened in tennis over the last 15 years, it's demoralizing. It's like you Can think... Can you be my theory? What's, what's your theory? It sucks to play tennis, to learn how to play yeah, it. Yes, it does. It, it sucks. It really sucks. We thought about it with my daughter. She would be good at tennis. And it's like... All right, so she gonna she can play six hours a day, and just be by herself, just it's hitting crazy. balls. The only thing that's no worse, social interaction. Like the only thing that's well, worse like, is, is swimming. Swimming is worse. Swimming's bad, and there's no money in it. At least there's money in tennis, but it's but the it's no, it's dreadful. It's there's like a the reason worst why so many of these tennis players hit 24 and they lose their minds. Yeah, and yeah. they and all of a sudden they're out and they're doing stuff, and you know, I think Capriati is a really good example of of and, just. Agassi, remember? Did you read the Agassi? Agassi is Agassi. another one. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's not a fun sport to learn how to play, and it's actually it's probably a sport that's better for like an only child. And also, I always we, really like tennis. I like hitting balls. I was an only child. Weirdly, all the tennis academies are in Florida, so not only are yeah. you forced to play this incredibly mind-numbing game, you know, for six seven hours a day, you have, you have to do it in scorching like uh, humidity and. You're stuck in Orlando. Like, nothing is going on. It's just like worst-case scenario. Why wouldn't they at least put the tennis academy somewhere interesting, right? Put it in Buenos Aires. Put it in Venice. Put it in, you know, like... That was when, uh, 10 years ago, my friend Connor, when, when uh, this was like a year before we, we started coming up with 30 for 30, it was during the Laguna Beach Hills craze, whatever. Remember those shows? Oh, yeah. The Hills, all that yeah. stuff? Like, the reality... And he became obsessed with this idea of doing Laguna Beach for the Bolitary Tennis Academy. <laughs> and we talked about it all the time for like six months. And, and, and every time we would finish the conversation with, this would be the greatest idea ever. And ESPN just wasn't at a place to pull something like that off. But yeah. I know it would have worked. I know I would have watched every episode. Oh, it would have been it's amazing. Cra- you know it's crazy. It it's, would have been the best. It's, it's, those are co-ed, right? They're all... Oh, yeah. They're all like... Four, they're all adolescent. It would have been great. Uh, the, the amount of hormones raging through the military. I'm surprised there hasn't been scandals coming out of those. I've guys. now moved on to my new favorite idea is Malibu Little League. Yes. The reality heard. show about yeah. uh, Little Leagues and their, and their parents in Malibu. I'm playing on a cliff as just, as just parents are... <laughs> hooking up with the coach and it could be a great one. What uh did we hit everything? What what how are we doing on time, Tate? We're at one eighteen. Oh, it's time to wrap up. I think we gotta wrap up Bill. Um Man, we never talked about stick to sports. Oh, that's another day. We'll save that for another day. The stick to sports era is has come to an end. But we ran out of time. We did build this as a when is your sec- when is the second season of your podcast launching? Uh June. Uh uh seven I got seven shows written, uh, three more to go. Uh, it's very exciting. Um, one sports show this time. Uh, it is all about golf. And my, uh, I'll only tease it by saying my highly controversial attack on golf is coming up. Highly controversial. It's going to be highly controversial. 
Uh, it's all about golf in LA. It's one of my favorite sports to attack. Go, it's all about golf in LA. It's going to okay. be. It's going to. You. I'm not telling anyone anymore. But all, all I can say, Bill, is that this one will deeply resonate with you as a Angelino, Los Angelino. I'm. I'm a New Englander who just happens to live here. That's right. And anytime it rains like this, and everybody freaks the f out. But I was like, this is. I, this was like a two out of ten in Boston. I know this is. And I may or may not be going after uh potus on this one because after all he's a man with deep financial and spiritual ties to the game of golf right yes it's possible i'll go in that direction yes malcolm gladwell as always a pleasure thanks bill talk to you soon uh quickly thanks to stamps.com stamps.com brings all the services of the u.s postal service right to your fingertips Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. They'll send you a digital scale, automatically calculate exact postage. Don't go to the post office again. Avoid the post office. Buy and print official U.S. postage. Sign up for stamps.com. Use promo code BS for a four-week trial that includes postage and a digital scale. Click on the microphone at the top of the stamps.com homepage. Type in BS. Thanks again to Simply Safe to give you superior protection for less than half of what traditional companies charge. Even better, there are no annual contracts, no middlemen. It's wireless and portable with a cellular connection built in. No lines that can be cut by potential intruders. You can even download the Simply Safe app free in your iPhone or Android smartphone. Take control of your security remotely. Protect your home the smart way. SimplySafe.com slash ringer. If you go there, you get 10% off your system today. That's Simply Safe with two eyes. SimplySafe.com slash ringer. Thanks to TheRinger.com. Don't forget to check out my trade deadline mailbag. Don't forget to check out the last few podcasts we've done. We're on a really good podcast world right now. We have some more good ones coming next week. And check out all the great content we're doing. The Oscars coming up in just about a week. NBA All-Star Weekend. We have a whole crew there. We're going to have a whole bunch of videos uh, coming up. We sent somebody down there you won't expect who's interviewing people and doing stuff with them. So, yeah, check out The Ringer next week. Enjoy the weekend. Stay safe, L.A. Back next week. Thanks, Marco. Thank you.